You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Some of the title of my sermon this morning, The Sinner's Heart for Christ. The Sinner's Heart for Christ. Again, uh, tomorrow's Palm Sunday, so if you're celebrating that, uh, praise God. We're celebrating the triumphal entry that we read about in the Gospels, where Christ comes into Jerusalem a week before Passover and declares that he is indeed the king who has come from the Lord. Uh, Next week is, of course, Easter, and so definitely excited about that. Uh, Keep that whole event in prayer. Of course, we're we're making that initiative to invite whoever we can, so if you haven't yet picked up any of these uh, invites, do so and invite them. And of course, tomorrow is our prayer service that we've been talking about. And tomorrow we're specifically praying for our Easter service and all those who are who we've invited to come out to that event. So please, please, please make the time to come out to the prayer service so that we can pray for the lost and pray that the gospel would be, would be preached with clarity and power uh, next weekend at Easter. We are back in the Gospel of John series, and we're headed towards the end of chapter 7. We've been going through chapter 7 for this entire past month, and just by way of recap, if you remember, chapter 7 begins with uh, with John telling us it's the Feast of Booths, it's a harvest festival for the Jewish people, and it was tradition for the Jews to go down, whether it's to the fields and, and create these booths or these tents in order to, in order to emulate or, or, or to to refer back to their experience in the wilderness where God had provided for them as they journeyed in the desert. And they would do this every year, this festival, the Feast of Booths. And, and it was also tradition for all the Jews to, to pilgrimage to Jerusalem where, where there was a big festivity there as well that the, the priests of the temple did. Now, John states at the very beginning of chapter 7 that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus because of the events that took place earlier in the earlier chapters of, of uh, the Gospel of John, where he healed a paralytic man at a pool during the Sabbath. And of course, Jesus, Jesus said it wasn't his time to go down. His brothers were pressuring him, if you remember that, to go down with him. But again, Jesus was so in sync with God's timing that he did not leave when his brothers left. He waited a little until, it was the, it was an, until his father said it was good for him to go, and the reason for that is because he needed to be able to go into the temple and teach, to be able to preach to those who would believe. If he had gone earlier, there would have been a crowd, the people would have arrested him, they were expecting him to be there with his brothers, and that would have deterred him from actually preaching in the temple. Now last week we saw a glimpse into the Savior's heart. We saw his sacrificial pursuit for the lost. How he knowingly went to the temple still under the threat of death, still under the threat of being arrested. Of course, we also saw his sincere desire when he was crying out in the temple, telling the people, uh, the people who were listening to him, that he was, he was one of them. He grew up amongst them. He, they know where he's from And that even affirms all the more his claim to be the Messiah because he wasn't a Messiah that suddenly appeared or was far off or was uh, unattached to the people, but rather he was a Messiah who came and lived amongst the people. Someone who who experienced the sufferings and the struggles with sin as uh, the people did. 
And so we saw a sincere desire for Christ to really draw the people towards him. And then, of course, after that, we saw that contrast with the Pharisees who completely rejected him. And, of course, Christ's own sorrow as he does, he rejects the, the religious elites of his day for their unbelief. Now this week, as we close off John chapter 7, we, we get once again a glimpse of the Savior's heart for the lost, but we also see the reverse of that. We also see the, the sinner's side of that, the sinner's heart for Christ. As, as, we'll see in, as we've been seeing in our, in our passage, in our study, Christ gives one last invitation at the Feast of Booths, at this great day, as our passage says. And once again, the people are very much divided. In fact, they've been divided throughout this entire chapter, right? His brothers were divided at the very beginning. In verse 12, the people were saying, he's a good man. Well, no, he's leading people astray. In verse 15, the people were questioning Jesus' authority. In verse 25 to 27, they were questioning the legitimacy of his claims as the Messiah, and in verse 30 to 31, we see how the people were still wanting to arrest him, but then there are some who started to believe in him. Chapter 7 is full of people questioning the legitimacy of Jesus' claim as the Messiah, people full of division. And I believe John recalls this, this scenario, this Feast of Booths, for a specific reason. First and foremost, to show that the Jews, the, the religious elites, remember John often refers to the religious authorities as the Jews, and when he refers to the common people, he says the people. He, he, John shows that, that the, the, the opinion of the religious authorities, the Jews, on Jesus was not consistent, was not sound, or even based on anything legitimate, in fact. That's why he's showing how there is division amongst the, the people of, of the day, it's, there's division between the common folk and the religious elites to put into question whether or not everything that the religious authorities of Jerusalem were, were, actual fact, or were, were factual. And secondly, the reason why I believe John is, is, is recalling this, this, this narrative is to show, again, the Savior's heart, even for those who would ultimately reject him. Remember John chapter 20, verse 31? That's John's thesis for this entire gospel. It says that these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John is writing to have, uh, with the purpose of having his believers or re his readers believe. This is an evangelistic gospel. And he's communicating through our passage, chapter 7, the, the Messiah's heart for the lost, for sinners. We read this, uh, we read already in our, in our passage how. Uh, Jesus was always in step with the Father's will. He was not doing anything on his own. He, was teaching, he wasn't teaching from some rabbinical text. He was teaching, teaching straight from the Father. He lived, uh, he lived for God's glory. He didn't live for his own. He was, he, was one with, he was one of the people. He grew up with them. They knew, he knew his struggles. He was offering a relationship with God despite all of that. And as and as we see in our passage, he's also offering this, this, this last invitation that he gives the, at the Feast of Booths. He's offering rivers of life. Now all of this, all of what we've been talking and reading about in, throughout this chapter is again pointing to the Savior's heart for the lost. It, it hopes to elevate Jesus' claim as the Messiah, as the Christ, compared to all the other messianic figures of that day. 
compared to all the other people who claimed to be Christ. Here was Jesus, one of the people giving himself not for, for his own glory, but for God's glory. Now all of that is, is highlighted against the, the, backdrop, the backdrop of the people's unbelief. Our passage reminds us where the sinner's heart is, the condition of a sinner's heart towards the Savior, and where it is even today when we reach out to the lost. I think especially it's a good timing that, that we are studying this last part of chapter 7 uh, right before Easter because, listen, next week there's going to be many kinds of people that attend our service. Many kinds of people with different backgrounds and religious backgrounds and heart conditions especially. Many reasons why people will be coming next week. Maybe it's for the food. Maybe it's to see an old friend that they haven't seen in a while. And of course... They're not just unbelievers that will be coming, but of course believers as well. And sometimes we too can exemplify a similar heart as the, the unbelievers in our passage. And as we'll see today, there's only one kind of heart that actually receives the good news. That actually responds to the hope, the, the, the waters of life that Jesus offers. And my hope for us this morning is that we would be reminded of the sinner's heart towards Christ, yes, and the kind of heart that, that we should watch out for next week and when we, whenever we interact with unbelievers so that we better know how to minister to people, but also that we would be reminded of the kind of heart that we should watch out for ourselves, the kind of heart that we should try to avoid and, and, and the kind of heart that we should try to emulate towards the Savior because the offer to quench one's thirst that we see in our passage is not just for unbelievers. The reality is it's for believers too. Ultimately, our hope is to examine our own hearts this morning to see if we truly, if we truly have received the waters of life that Jesus has offered, the waters of eternal life that he, that he provides in our passage to all who come and drink. So let's jump into our passage and, and let's unpack our, our text for us. Let's go to verse 37 so that we might, again, once, under, once again, understand the sinner's heart for Christ. It says in verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now you might be wondering, why, is this, why, why, does, the, why does John say that this is the great day? A great day of the Feast of Booths. Well, as I mentioned, this was a harvest festival for the Jewish people. And every day of the week, so it was a week-long festival, and every day of, of that week, uh, the, the priests of the temple would go and draw water from the specific well, a, a holy well according to their religion, and pour it into this golden container. And on the last day, the high priest would then lead a procession, a whole parade of the temple priests, outside to the south gate, also known as the water gate, where three trumpets will be sounded and blown, and the priests uh, would march around this container, and the temple choir would sing songs, or they would sing psalms in relation to this, to this event, to this festival. Then the high priest would then take that golden uh, vessel of, full of the water that, the, that they've been collecting all throughout the week, and then they would offer it as a drink offering to God in hopes that there would be sufficient rainfall in the, in the following year for the crops. 
Now, all the while, the people would be crying out or the people would be reciting Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It's on this great day, the last day of this Feast of Booths and this festival that Jesus cries out. That he, again, same thing as last week, the word therefore for crying out is kradzo. It's expressed deep emotion. He's crying out to the people once more. If anyone thirsts, let him come and drink. Let him come to me and drink. That's the invitation that he gives on this last day. And of course, he's connecting it to this water ritual that the Jews had on, on, in the Feast of Booths. And by the way, if you look at just that one line, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. That is the invitation for the gospel. It is the invitation for one to recognize that they are indeed thirsty, that they are indeed in need of a Savior, and then to come, meaning to leave where you're at, leave where all your sins are at, and to come to the Savior so that you might drink. That you might receive. And of course, verse 38 defines for us what drinking means. Look at verse 38 with me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. To drink is to believe in Christ. That's the invitation. And of course, the living water that's referenced in verse 38 is, is looking back in Ezekiel chapter 47, there's a great prophecy there that you're welcome to look up later on. And it talks about how there will be living waters flowing from the temple of God in Jerusalem. In Ezekiel chapter 47 verse 9, it says, And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish, for the waters, water go, uh, goes there that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live wherever this river goes. It's a great messianic prophecy that once the Messiah comes, that this river, this, this living water would flow from the temple and bless the entire land. It's so much it's an crucial, a crucial part to messianic prophecy that Zechariah has the same prophecy as well. Zechariah 13.1 says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. This was the messianic hope that the Messiah would bring about life for this living water and also cleansing, as we just read. Now, Let's go to verse 39, 39 rather. It says, now this he said, John is explaining, he's giving a little commentary here. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this is a callback to John chapter 3, if you remember that. Um, that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. And of course, Nicodemus, we see the parallel there because Nicodemus once again shows up at the end of chapter 7, tying it all in with chapter 3 of John where it says in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where, where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of spirit. A person who believes, the one who drinks and, 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 and is filled by this, this living water is the one who has the spirit of God. That's what, that's what John's commentary is talking about in verse 39. 
Similar to chapter 3 of John, when, when Jesus says that you must be born again to Nicodemus, this Pharisee, the same principle applies here. You cannot choose to be born again. That's the illustration that Jesus is connecting to when he uses that metaphor of being born again. Similar to how you were, when you were physically born, you had no choice in that. Being born again, spiritually born, by the Spirit, you, you, cannot be, you, you do not have a choice in that. It is the Spirit's work to regenerate the heart. And of course, we know that passage in John chapter 3 is in reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, where God himself says to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's, that's all connected. The spirit moving, the water cleansing, it is, it's all referring to the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in the sinner's heart. So now after Jesus proclaims his desperate plea to the people, after he cries out to, to again, to if, you, if you're thirsty, then come to me and, uh, and, and drink, rather believe. It says in verse 40, look at this with me. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. This is another messianic prophecy from Deuteronomy. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Again, um, these people are questioning the legitimacy of Christ's claim because they, they know where he was coming from. He came from Galilee. And they were, they were questioning it because they were thinking, well, shouldn't the Christ be from the lineage of David? Of course, they didn't know that Jesus was, in fact, from the lineage of David, and we see his, his genealogy in the other Gospels, and we see that even from both sides of the parents, is, he's descendant from uh, King David's line. But these people did not bother to investigate. It was just a very uh, superficial association with Christ. They, they thought, well, this is what I heard, and we're just going to leave it at that. We're going to come back to that. Um, that kind of mentality later. And so, so in verse 43, our passage says, So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. It's interesting because throughout the Gospels, this idea of division, as we've been talking about in this, this, this entire chapter of John chapter 7, is all about the people being divided. But this really reflects the, the, the content of the Gospel. What the gospel does to a sinful people, it divides. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, Jesus himself says, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his, her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What Jesus is talking about here is the, the divisiveness of the gospel. That it divides. It divides between people who, who believe in Christ and those who don't. It divides between those who, have, who, who thirst for Christ and those who have hardened their heart towards God. The gospel is divisive. So all these, these, these intentions of some of these churches, 
try to placate to the lost. Try to make the gospel sound easier to be received by the lost. Listen, Jesus himself said that people would be turned away. People will hate the gospel. It will divide even families. In verse 45 of our passage, it says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. These officers, by the way, they weren't just sort of regular cops. They were, they were temple guards. They were temple officers. And they were trained in the religious order in the temple. And they, were, they did the bidding of the priests. And so these guys were trained in Scripture as well. And so when they're hearing the message of Christ, they're, being, they're thinking, this, this guy knows what he's talking about. Why should we arrest him? And of course, we see sort of the response from the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees answer them, have you also been de- deceived? Were you tricked as well? Have any of the authorities of the, or the Pharisees believed in him? Now they're looking amongst their own people. They're thinking, do you, are, do you believe in Jesus? Do you? There's great division even amongst their officers here. Then verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. Again, it sort of shows the ignorance of the, the Pharisees here, or, or rather more so their, the hardness of their heart. Because here is everybody, every single body who's, who's hearing Christ being swayed being, or, or starting to believe in, in Christ's teachings or who, who, can, who can attest of his power and his authority. And yet here are these Pharisees, these religious elites. They are so hardened in their ways that they, they, they accuse everyone else of being accursed or ignorant of the truth. And good old Nicodemus shows up in verse 50. Remember how, how John chapter 3 ended with the scene with Nicodemus. Nicodemus never, it never says that Jesus, or rather Nicodemus believed in Christ at the end of chapter 3. In fact, it sort of ends with a sorrowful note that he goes away and, and he doesn't believe at that moment. But we see that even in this moment in verse 50 that, that Nicodemus is trying to stand up for Christ. There's, there's something stirring in his heart. Something stirring in his heart after that conversation he had with Jesus in John chapter 3. And he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? They're mocking him now. Like, are you from Galilee? Is that why you like Jesus? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're saying, look at the text. Look at, look at the Old Testament It doesn't say that anybody and no prophet would come from Galilee. Except Jonah and Nahum came from Galilee. They're revealing their ignorance. From this we see, now from this we see the three types of hearts, the heart conditions that sinners can have um, towards the Savior. And only one of which is is an appropriate response. Only one of which um, does the Holy Spirit work in. And so we'll, we'll look at that in reverse order of appearance, so to speak. First and foremost, we see the sinner's heart for Christ, that it can be a hardened heart. A hardened heart. Again, these Pharisees, after seeing all these signs, after, after seeing the, the, or hearing the, for themselves the teachings of Christ, they think everybody else is deceived. They think that they're the only ones that know the truth. They think everybody else is ignorant. They have that mentality. It's interesting because even though the truth was right there in their face, 
They did not believe. I wonder if you've ever come across an unbeliever like that where they've said uh, before, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And they say, you know, I'll believe in Christ when, when he shows up or if he does something. Well, the reality is, even if God did move, even if God did show up, they would not believe. Because here are these, these religious authorities who, who in the flesh got to see Christ. God incarnate. And they still didn't believe. I think it's important um, to, to, to remember that this is the default disposition of the human heart. It is hardened towards God. Anyone born of Adam is hardened towards God. It's why that Ezekiel 36 passage is so important in our understanding of what it means to believe and what salvation entails because in the, in, if, if it was up to man, we would not be saved. Apart from the, the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts would remain hardened and stone. And it's only when the Holy Spirit takes that heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh, only then, only then can we begin to understand the things of God. Only then can we believe. This is the disposition of man, the, that we have hardened hearts towards God. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 to 12, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the doctrine of total depravity. This is the doctrine that says that, our, that we have inherited a sin nature from Adam. That our natural disposition without the work of the Holy Spirit is to deny God, is to run away from God, is to rebel against God. No, listen, no one ever in, the, in, in human history has suddenly come to, come to some revelation to think, oh man, I need God. Oh man, I'm a wretched person, I need God. No one by themselves has ever come to that revelation. The Bible says they cannot. It's not within the disposition. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Verse 14, you can write these passages down if you want. It says, The natural person does not accept the things of God or the Spirit of God, for they are fully to him. Foolishness. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it talks about how for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it cannot. This is the natural disposition of man in our depravity, in our sinful depravity. We cannot turn ourselves towards God. If anything, we are completely hostile towards God. In fact, in Romans chapter 1 even, in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth of God. And in verse 25, it says, because they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We would, in our natural disposition as human beings, we would rather believe a lie over the truth of God. If you've ever wondered why people hate and rage against the church, if you've ever wondered why people go into schools, Christian schools, and shoot up children, is because their hearts are completely hostile to the things of God. 
You'll ever wonder why your unbelieving friend, no matter how many times you've invited them to church, no matter how many times you've shared the gospel to them, they're so resistant, so hardened, is because in their natural state, they suppress the truth of God. They rage against the things of God. Listen, you know, the Bible describes hell as a place of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. What that means is that, that we get the whole weeping part, right? People will be weeping in pain in their suffering, but in the gnashing part, in the original Greek, the word there is brugmos. It describes a growling of a, of a beast, a, a snarling of an animal towards their prey. There, the illustration there is that Jesus is being, that Jesus is using for those who are in hell is that even in hell, even amidst the wrath of God, people are still gnashing their teeth towards him. People are still raging against God, still hostile towards God. If you read the book of Revelation, when God has fully revealed his glory, and he's bringing about that new heaven and new earth. In Revelation chapter 16, when God reveals his glory, it says when, when the skies are being rent and, and the, the, the earth is being shook, the people are still cursing at God. Same people who say, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. And God finally shows up. They're still hurling curses at him. Listen, that is the natural disposition of man. It's, and it's sad, really. In fact, this entire passage, you know, we were talking about last week how Christ had this sorrowful rejection. And we see why, because after everything, after Christ himself pleading for these people to turn to him, to receive from him, we still reject him. They still curse him. Again, this is the natural disposition of man. I, I liken it to like a fish, right? It's a fish, its lungs can only breathe water. That's its disposition. It's only, it's, it's, it can only breathe water. Even if you took it out of the water, the lungs don't start breathing air. Unless you somehow take you know, human lungs, per se, and transplanted into a fish to get all the organs connected, all the, the veins connected, all the... It's impossible for that fish to breathe air. And similarly, in our natural disposition of the human heart, it's the same idea. Unless something is transplanted into us, as impossible as it may sound, uh, as a fish taking on the lungs of a human, as impossible it might sound, as a, it, that's the same impossibility as being described when we say that the human heart is hardened and requires the Holy Spirit to come in with a new heart. Why Ezekiel chapter 36 is so important to our faith. For God says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart, a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Unless the Holy Spirit regenerates the heart, unless it's God himself who causes one to be born again, causes us to walk in his ways, we in our natural disposition cannot. 
So then what does this mean for us in application? What does it mean for us and our loved ones who have hardened hearts? Who, the, the sinners in our lives who have not repented, who continue to rage, what can we do? We pray. We pray, pray, and pray. We ask the Holy Spirit for mercy to move in their hearts. We ask the Holy Spirit to move in their hearts that they might have a heart of flesh. It's why prayer service is important tomorrow. It's, it's, it's why we need to get down on our knees and pray throughout this entire week for those who need to hear the gospel next weekend. Listen, this entire week is going to be spiritual warfare. Because in, in addition to the hardened hearts of man, the enemy will try his uttermost to keep those who need to hear the gospel from coming into these doors. And, our, and, our, and, and as Paul says, our, the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. They're not physical. It's prayer. So we need to pray. We must pray for the hearts of the lost that they might be softened towards the gospel. Again, as a reminder, that hardened heart is what we once had. And though we still sometimes harden our hearts towards God in disobedience, it's not to that same extent. In fact, where most believers are in their own heart condition, unfortunately, is a second illustration that we have from our passage, the shallow heart. The shallow heart. Our passage at the very beginning said, or talks about how some of these people are saying, but is the Christ to come from Galilee? Right? They're questioning once again the origin of of where the Messiah was going to come from. And as all the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village that, where David was. Again, these people, if they had dug a little deeper, if they had investigated a little more, they would have found out that Jesus was in fact from the lineage of David, that he was in fact born in Bethlehem. But here's the thing. They were just satisfied with, with their ignorance. They were satisfied with what they heard in the past. They didn't choose to go any deeper. They didn't choose to dive any deeper towards uh, discovering who Jesus truly was. These are those who, who know the things of God. Maybe they grew up in the church. Maybe they, they read their Bible in the past. Maybe they were part of youth group. They, were, they have Christian friends. Maybe they attend uh, services like Easter once in a while. But their relationship with Christ, their relationship with the truth, their relationship with the Word of God is, is shallow. It's mostly exterior, exterior. It's similar to, again, these people in our passage, they didn't bother going deeper. They were comfortable with their ignorance. They were comfortable in the shallows. And many unbelievers are like this, and at the same time, many believers are like this. Many will come next week thinking that they are good, that they don't need to learn anymore, that they don't, need, they don't need to hear the gospel because they grew up in church. They know the Easter story, right? And then they will leave that service and then go back to the world. Because again, their hearts are shallow. It's all exterior. They come to church, they dress fancy, they talk the talk, all that stuff. But their faith... Doesn't, grow, doesn't go deep enough for them to have roots. It's what Christ describes as rocky ground in the parable of the sower. 
Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, he says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. As, as a lot of people will next week with us. They'll sing the songs with us. They'll celebrate Easter with us. Yet he has no root in himself. It endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This also relates to the, the, the seeds that fell among the thorns, where Jesus says, as for what was sown among thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Many will come and join us next week for the Easter festivities, the celebrations. Many will receive the message with joy and our fellowship with joy, the food with joy. But once they're put to the test, they'll see or it'll be revealed that there is no root. Once they're surrounded by the temptations of this world, it'll reveal that there is no root to sustain them in the midst of those trials. And of, the, and of all the kinds of hearts that we talk about today, that's the one that I believe believers are, believers are at most danger of. Our hearts can grow cold. We can be superficial in the faith. We can, just, we can be content with the shallows of our faith. Of, it, of our faith just being a weekend event. But it never carries over to the day after or, or the week after. It doesn't take root. It doesn't, it doesn't produce fruit. We find ourselves, when we find ourselves thrown about in the, thorn, the storms of life, we find ourselves turning to other things other than our faith. Again, it doesn't produce fruit. So the invitation for us this morning from our passage, from the Word of God, is to go deeper, to grow deeper. The invitation is to, to, to wade away from the shallows and go deeper in our faith. How do we do that? In God's Word. It's why we study it. God's Word is the, is the, the shovel, it's the tool that digs and excavates so that our hearts can go deeper in, in the truths of God and to the will of God. That we don't have a shallow faith. Similar to how plants require water and sunlight for sustenance, for photosynthesis. We need God's word in our lives to grow. In Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight. Where he takes pleasure from is in the law, the word of God, and the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What's the result of that? that? What's the result of that delighting in God's word? It says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. That's how we grow deeper. It's in the word of God. Beloved, we must be careful that our hearts do not become shallow. That we, that we become content with the lessons of the past, the growth of the past, 
that we'd always desire to grow deeper, that we would be rooted deeper in God's Word, in our relationship with God, in prayer, in our community. It's the only way that we can truly produce fruit. And listen, where that, where that starts is when we have our, the last heart that we see in our passage, the thirsty heart. A thirsty heart. Uh, we see the example of these people after Jesus invites them to receive the waters of life. There's people who said, this is really the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Verse 41. They demonstrated a thirsty heart because they understood that they needed a prophet, someone to reveal the truths of God, that they needed a savior, someone uh, to save them from their state. And this is, in fact, it's these people who demonstrated a thirsty heart, a heart that was longing for more. And this is the invitation, this is, this is who's, who the invitation was for when Jesus says again, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You cannot drink and you cannot come unless you first recognize that you are in need of something, that you are thirsty. Unless you first recognize that in this world of, of salt water, that Jesus is the only one that offers fresh water. In this world of temporal solutions and quick fixes that don't last, that it's, it's only Jesus that satisfies. Un, un, until you recognize that, until you recognize that you truly thirst for what truly satisfies, for what Christ alone can offer. You cannot come, you cannot drink. If we recall in our study in the Gospel of John, this is not the first time that Jesus has offered living water. In John chapter 4, that great conversation that he has with the Samaritan woman, Jesus says in verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And in verse 14, he says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And after that conversation, if you recall, Jesus then calls out the Samaritan woman of the, the illicit past that she's had, of the, the many husbands that she's had. It was only after that. It was only after Christ pointed out her need that she actually believed. It is a thirsty heart that, that, that is a sign of the Holy Spirit working in us. It is a thirsty heart that is evidence of the Holy Spirit having done a, a heart surgery in us so that we might have a, a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. Because it's only then that we can actually truly thirst for God, desire after the Savior. And, beloved, this, we'll, we'll encounter these kinds of people next week. Those whom the Holy Spirit has been already working in their hearts. Already cultivating good soil. Already developing a thirst and a hunger for God. Even some of the conversations that I've been having with some of you about the people that you're inviting. You can already tell that there's a need. There's a desire, a hunger 
that can only be satisfied in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And for us, our responsibility in all of this is to make sure that the paths are clear. That the paths to this living water is clear to remove any obstacle that we ourselves can remove just so that they would have the opportunity to drink. If it's, if, it's, if it's inviting them, if it's pursuing them, if it's being on, uh, on their case just so that they would come and hear the gospel, or even if it's, as we were talking about last week, where it's our own, it's our own responsibility to go and share the gospel, to point them to Christ, to point them where they can find drink and be refreshed in their souls, to point them to where... There is spiritual bread to satisfy their hunger. We must do whatever it takes. And our great assurance, our great assurance about this living water that, that we are presenting to these people, our great hope about this living water that's even that we are invited to partake in is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Anyone who seeks will find. Anyone who hungers or thirsts for the righteousness of God, they shall be satisfied. That is a great assurance that we have. All, all those who come and thirst. For those who are thirsty and come to Christ and drink from Him, that, we, that they shall be satisfied. That we shall be satisfied. Because again, as I've been saying, listen, this invitation to come and drink is not just for unbelievers. It's for believers, too, who might find themselves weary. Who might find themselves weary from the day, from the world, from the struggles of this life. That satisfaction, that, that quenching of the thirst that you have can only be found in Christ. The invitation and the assurance for us is that we too can be satisfied. Again, some of us here this morning might be spiritually dry. Some of us who is listening to my voice might be hungry for more, but have been turning to things of this world, have been turning to things that never satisfy, that don't satisfy. Christ invites us to Him. Christ invites us to Him, to receive from Him living waters. I love what He says, right? Out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of His heart, out of His love, out of His passion, that's where He's offering that living water. That's where He's inviting us to, to receive. We must come to Christ to receive the living water. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.